it's fine. Can you hear that rumbling? Um, no, not now. I think I heard Adam sit down, but yep, Adam just yeah. came down. I just want to make sure there's a little bit of machine equipment. I just want to make sure how much we can. No, right now on the headsets, it's clear. I mean, maybe it picks up something, but I think we're good. Okay, perfect. Yep, Adam's here now, so we're ready to rock and roll. Hey, Adam, how you doing? Hi, good. Hey, okay. So we'll just start. I'm Nathan Koskovich, and I'm I'm talking via Skype with Adam Smith and Lisa Savia. How are you guys? We're doing great. Doing well. That'd be, that'd be Lisa. Adam? Doing good. A little cold up here today. Yeah, it's a little cold down here, finally, but it's probably <laughs> nothing like Michigan. <laughs> yeah, ex- hoping for cold versus expecting and bearing for it is a bit different. Yeah, yeah. The um, the warm weather, I said, was like the uh, creepy guy at work that's being nice to you. It's nice, but it kind of wigs you out in the wintertime. <laughs> so um, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about your, your practice or tell me about it, your uh, synecdoche. And I guess a good way to – where am I saying that right and to explain the, the story behind it, which you've shared before? Yeah, um, it is synecdoche. Some people don't pronounce it right, and it actually works out okay because it opens up – a conversation to explain what it is and what we're about. So, I mean, we can start from the beginning. We named ourselves synecdoche, which is a literary trope, like a, a synonym or a metonym that stands for um, objects or materials representing a bigger idea. So when you reference the throne for, say, the Queen of England, or we pay with plastic for a credit card, that materials and objects can do a lot more in our understanding of our environment than just the objects themselves. So synecdoche works a lot in the same way that we work in multiple scales of making those objects from furniture um, all the way up to architecture. And mainly right now we're doing a lot of interior uh, build-out work in the commercial um, restaurant and digital tech office space. Right. So let me see if I can, um, let me take a stab at this. I, I think the, the idea is that it's sort of an expansion on the idea of kind of functionalist architecture, that materials are more than just what they do for us physically. Absolutely. I think it creates a mood and an environment and, um, you know, lighting, a scalar, you know, you can do a lot in terms of the ambient environment and how mm-hmm. you work in a space by controlling, you know, some of those details. Yeah, I guess I was referring specifically to the, the name synecdoche, the uh, the idea that ma- materials are more than just materials, but they, are, they encompass a whole range of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of where the work starts is um, figuring out if there's a new material we can play with and how we might be able to tool it up differently or fabricate it a little differently mm-hmm. um, to, to make an impact, usually functionally, like does it do something acoustically as well as aesthetically? Um, does it help divide a space and um, transmit light, et cetera? So they have dual function um, with how we fabricate the material and then what materials we use. Yeah, so really trying to think about materials in terms of all their characteristics absolutely yeah so um so that's your practice do you two you two also teach you were at one time we were at one time we haven't been for a, a year. year now yeah we but now that uh, office has gotten more busy we're i don't know we don't have the time for it right now but also it's a good kind of break from the school we've been in in and around the schools for since we started yeah <laughs> since we started undergrad um so it's definitely this is kind of the first year that we're completely separated from it and doing our own thing and focusing on it our own work uh so it's a good kind of detox for past few months yeah yeah it's a nice shift so you guys are kind of fully into the architectural practice and everything associated with that yes yeah yeah and that was after you know four years of being uh, within the schools. So we've been in all the schools in Metro Detroit, Detroit Mercy, uh, Lawrence Tech, and U of M. So mm-hmm. we've seen different combinations of faculty types and student ambitions. 
and, and now it's kind of that moment where we want to we want to do um, a bit of kind of our own write our own syllabus for our own office <laughs> and set up our own prompts to test right. it out instead of kind of teaching and working through you know all the students' designs and guiding them. We want to guide ourselves through our own projects for a little bit. Yeah, see if all those ideas you came up with actually work and exactly what needs to happen. So, um, so where where did you guys grow up originally? Even before you ended up in Michigan. Michigan. In Michigan. Yeah. In Michigan. Whereabouts in Michigan? Like, I'm from pretty much around the same area, just around Metro Detroit. Mm -hmm. Um, I've moved around just, you know, 10 miles to 10 miles to 10 miles. Like, we moved around a lot, but just stuck around southeast Michigan and Mm -hmm. up Ann Arbor. Yeah, I grew up just north of Ann Arbor. So, making Ann Arbor our home and where our office is, um, it's just come with a support structure too of friends and family um, and just having good neighbors that uh, we know about. And to have three three architecture schools, you know, within an hour drive has been actually a really great, you know, resource for other creative minds um, to talk with. Yeah, those are all, um, that's really great. So you guys have really deep roots in the, the Detroit, Michigan area. Um, most of what most people know about Detroit as far as architecture is kind of the decay of its urban center and some some grand old buildings that have faded. But what is how is the architecture out in that environment in Detroit generally, do you think, or the culture around architecture there? I think it, it definitely it works with both of those things. Like both of those are the main ingredients, I think. And then there's a lot of the new crop coming up. But there's a good set of modernist like 1950s, 60s, and 70s architecture yeah. that happened mm-hmm. here. Like a Cranbrook. big part of Cranbrook, you know, Cranbrook being here and the Eames and Bertoya and Saarinen coming through here mm-hmm. has left a mark on this area that I think still continues like to the, the people and you know who taught at Michigan before, like Met, Robert Metcalf and... Um, yeah. Mid-century modern's really strong. Mm-hmm. And then the grit of Detroit now. And so layering those together, it's made an interesting hybrid of uh, attention to, you know, simple details uh, through the architecture world and then a lot of exploration. Detroit's a new frontier that a lot of people are coming to, you know, the millennial generation is just excited about the opportunities, starting businesses, uh, which opens up, you know, retail spaces, et cetera, to design. Um, So there's a lot of opportunity both for temporary installations and experimental work because there's just so much material and so much space to do those things. But then there's so much built up demand um, within all of those vacant spaces that people are starting businesses and are looking for strong design aesthetics to fill those spaces too. Yeah, and so that's that's become the kind of recent story of Detroit is that it's become, it's, what was seen as urban decay has now become an opportunity where yep. things are inexpensive and there's uh, lots of volume and maybe not a lot of mass in the culture there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we finished grad school, we saw a lot of our colleagues kind of leave to either coast because that's where a lot of the design opportunities were. And we were pretty focused on staying here to say, no, there's, there's demand for design in the Midwest and, there's a lot of resources in manufacturing where you can create things that you're designing here. And so we've been adamant about trying to make a lot of that culture in Ann Arbor specifically, but just the Midwest, it, like you don't have to go coastal to get a lot of those opportunities. Yeah. There's been a lot of, um, there are a lot of architects in Atlanta that have had kind of a similar idea that, you know, New York and the coasts are, are, are great and fabulous, but in a lot of ways, they're done. You know, Atlanta's mm-hmm. still so new and Detroit's rebuilding, but there's not a lot that can be done there sometimes, it feels like. Right. Yeah. There's a lot more space yeah. to do more. Because, like, with Detroit, too, like, if you're coming in there, you have to invent something. You have to do it yourself. It's not going to be as much funding or easily to, you know, go about and do it the normal way, like, through regular channels. But that kind of opens up the door for, well, we can do something different. We have to do it 
with different materials or we have to do it a little bit faster or it's going to go slower or, you know, everything, everything is kind of a different variable. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta's a lot that same way. And I think you experienced that when you participated in the 10 up competition where very few people with a very little amount of money can, can make pretty big waves in, in the design and, and architecture and urbanism culture. It's just, thin and movable in a way that those other cultures aren't and full of opportunity. Yeah. And I think the 10 up is a really good example of a really well-organized project. Um, and it was great to be a part of, we've seen, you know, other ones where everyone wants to do too much, too many installations at once, or that you lose sight of what the entire ambition of that project is. Uh, we really appreciated 10 up in that way that it was just kind of a, a one piece with a simple timeline and budget to implement um, and didn't try to do too many things within one project mm-hmm. where, you know, sometimes everyone gets so overwhelmed by all the opportunity in Detroit that it's, it's a do everything at once and we lose focus of where those opportunities lead and what's the reasoning behind it. Yeah, there's there's a real value to limitations, and just to for the listeners who don't know, Ten Up competition it was something was run by the Young Architects Forum in Atlanta, and it's basically a competition to build a temporary installation. And the only limitation is the budget, which is varies around five thousand dollars depending on the year, and a, a ten foot by ten foot base. Um, and you guys entered from Michigan and won. Yeah. Do you guys want to talk a, a little bit about your installation? I know some people will recognize it as the giant Jenga set. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how we describe it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that was a project all about materials. Um, Basically, it was the product of a hardwood mill um, facility that's cutting boards down to size for for customers, mm-hmm. and then in that process you know when you're cutting boards to you know five inches wide once they're kiln dried and cut those off cuts you know once those off cuts are made it leaves a bit of scrap called edges and each one's different width but they're all the same thickness they're all one inch thick so we we had gotten contacted in contact with them and we're able to they were able to donate all those pieces and then we could go and pick out from basically they have a stack and it's kind of intercepted between getting cut off the ends of the boards and then going into the mulcher to be sold as, as mulch, right. Mm -hmm. Or to be used in their kiln to, to, to dry the rest of the wood in there. So we kind of intercepted the material as it's going through the process and we're able to use that one inch thickness, knowing they're all the exact same. They're all, you know, pre milled. They're Mm -hmm. all cut. Um, So the stacking, would make a level structure yeah but then it was the material was a free cost so we could just put more effort into i mean how many the logistics (laughs) the logistics from ann arbor to atlanta etc um but yeah it, it became a design problem about material infrastructure and how to intercept it to make something uh large enough within that that budget um, that made an impact as a signifier during the design week. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the installation was a 10 foot by 20 foot, 10 foot by 10 foot by 20 foot tall tower with a small space kind of carved out at the base. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I thought it was great because the entire project kind of took the logic of these leftover sticks and using them as straightforward a way as possible to create kind of its own aesthetic and form. So it had kind of a shaggy look, even though it was intellectually really rigorous and how it was. No piece was, no piece was attached. So every piece we, you remember that we all stacked each, each individual piece of that. Yeah. Yeah. On scissor list with volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how many pieces there were. I don't remember that part, but yeah, that's where it kind of gets its, its fuzziness or it's, you know, each piece is stacked. There's a, we knew hand. that we had the method of yeah. stacking. So mm-hmm. We had, you know, how many about would go on each level. And then we, you remember, we just went for it. And it exactly. kind of, yeah. I think it's cool that that kind of aggregate comes yeah. out at the end off yeah. of just one method. 
yeah, it wasn't controlling the detail of the geometry of it as much as just the act of doing it with all the prep work of just 10 foot sticks. So. Yeah, it was sort of a, a strategy of how to make something and then you kind of judge the results afterwards. You know, right. it wasn't thinking about making an object. Yeah. And to see it full scale, it's like, what does 20 feet with one inch kind of openings between the, the layers and how does the light go through and how much can you actually get that texture at that scale? It was one of those things that you just had to, you had to build it to kind of see what the end result was. Um, yeah, you couldn't prototype it by laying two sticks down and saying yeah. that's going to look good. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a really great project, and it really embraced the temporariness by being recyclable. As you said, you basically just intercepted a product for a few weeks. Right. Um, Take it back to the windmill, and they'll chop it back up, and it'll be gone. Yep. I think it's on a, somebody's farm right now. Um, right. Used so, for good bonfires. It was all dried out. <laughs> yeah, you could kindling would be really strong. Um, anyway, backing up though, how how aware were you guys of um, Detroit's architecture scene growing up? Was there a big popular culture that was aware of it? What do you mean by growing up? <laughs> when like, you before you decided to enter architecture school, architecture I think there. Really? No, I mean, I remember Adam telling me stories about he would go into old Albert Kahn buildings to play paintball oh, yeah, in Detroit, you know, so there would be a big, no, it was old, in the Packard building. Yeah. In the Packard plant. Yeah, they had a paintball facility in there. <laughs> it was abandoned. So Adam growing up, I was on a hockey team and we would go at the end of the year, we would go and do this paintball thing. And it was at the Packard plant, which is a whole story of its own. Yeah. No, that's funny. Then, but just like moving around that space, driving in it you know my mom driving us us into the building and around was was weird but that was yeah like our exposure to our architecture exposure. in detroit wasn't like you were exposed to albert Kahn and his large factories and you know they knocked out one a week um but it wasn't an awareness specifically of you know the eames were here or saarinen was building or right. you know one woodward is a yamasaki building like those those weren't part of popular culture um, but you were just surrounded by it because there, there was so much of it. That's funny. We used to play paintball in an old uh, strip shopping center, which I think sp speaks to Atlanta as a kind of post-60s <laughs> white-collar uh, service industry town, and Detroit is a kind of a post-industrial yep. re-inhabitation. So there you go. You can define your city or your your city's previous life based on where paintballs <laughs> yeah <laughs> ranges are so. there's always a way to divide people up so <laughs> um so so what led you guys into architecture then was it that was it playing pinball or not pinball paintball and wondering where this thing came from well i like i picked architecture you know i took a drafting class in middle school and i just kind of streamlined went straight towards it. I think more of the question is, you know, why did we decide to do architecture the way we did it? Because mm -hmm. we, we both, you know, it was like high school and you, you pick a degree and you do it and you don't know what you're doing. We didn't know what architecture actually was when we started. Yeah. But by the time we finished undergrad, it was like, okay, how, how do we want to handle architecture? And at that point we had come from Lawrence Tech, which is, you know, a bit more logical and practical of a school so we had a lot of the awareness of how to implement a, a building uh, it wasn't so much about just big design talk we had all the logistical grit to implement so we had the confidence to, to start out right then and there in our final semester of undergrad we were design fabricating uh, interior build out of a graphic design office in Detroit mm -hmm. so we just, it was hard in undergrad to, you know, be learning Revit as a course almost every semester <laughs> that we just had this built up energy to make something and make, you know, be creative with our hands. And so the next step was choosing to get into architecture on our terms of design making. So yeah, making and fabricating for you is kind of one and one with architecture. It's not a 
it's not necessarily a, a design on paper and then put it to somebody else to make. Although I, I imagine you do a fair amount of that just because of the complexity of building, but. Yeah, we're, we're always on a project all the way through. You know, you can talk about construction administration as something where you can check in on contractors doing something. Yeah. But for, for us, it's, we're bringing um, parts of the project and installing them simultaneous to the contractors. So when we do construction administration, we're doing admin work in our shop, making sure that stuff happens in the time frame with the logistics of you know what's happening on site with the contractor build out too. Mm -hmm. And so we work really closely with contractors. They understand that we're making because we're making things to really control some of those details, they understand the care that goes into projects and we usually get a really solid result out of them um, because of that mm -hmm. well. So we, we, we think that ambition kind of trickles through the project with, with the entire team, which we like as well. Yeah, yeah, so you're, you're fabricating different parts of a project and working with other trades to kind of finish the whole project. Yeah, so that's what we call ourselves design make instead of design build. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. As semantics of we don't do the actual contracting, um, but we work closely with the project all the way through. Mm -hmm. Well, it is interesting how uh, contractors and, um, you know, carpenters and steelworkers, people who aren't known for having a reputation for, for creativity or appreciation of those kind of things actually do respond to quality and care and they like everybody want to do a great job and there's um a great clip in the Maisel brothers film um about christo's uh valley curtain where these steel workers are, are hanging this curtain which seems ridiculous for steel workers and uh a reporter asked one of them is it art and he's just he's shocked by kind of how inane the question is mm -hmm. and he just looks at her he's like somebody thought of that um so I can I can understand how your care and your being there fabricating just adds to the the culture of doing a good job on a site. Yeah, and it's just the more specific. The, it seems like they all love to be as specific as possible. The more information you give them, the more they're going to feed off of that. And be like, okay, let's try that. Let's let's work on that type of detail and let's mock those things up. And uh, they're willing to learn and grow too. It's they're just waiting for those opportunities for design to come and say, you know, we're not doing a typical wall. Let's figure mm -hmm. out how to sandwich a wall, you right. know, with different materials and make it operate. Yeah, even when we come in and we're not totally clear on what the final detail is going to be, we've dealt with some that are really helpful in trying to figure that out with us. Once we go through the process, you know, we're trying to figure out how to build a wall that's not with drywall, but showing studs and showing the metal frame and showing the acoustics inside that process that we went through, it turned into a really good one with the contractor and the carpenter, both trying to figure out the best detail, the best way for it to look, trying, you know, challenging themselves on some different ways to do it. And I think they, you know, I really liked working with them on that. We were able to have, you know, make it better yeah. like based off of their expertise. Cause we, we also know, we don't know all the construction details every time we're going into a project with, with them, it's, you know, we're going to learn a ton from everything that, that gets built and definitely like looking to them for how do you guys see it? How do you guys see the best way to put this together from, you know, more past experience of building things has been really, really helpful. I think everybody responds well to that. Yeah, I found that's actually a really helpful approach with contractors when they're asking questions is not to get defensive, but ask them how how they might handle it if it's not something you're completely familiar with or right. there's something there. And they, they, they usually respond really well to that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, how I think design is held back a lot by a, a sort of culture of not wanting to look too ambitious or not wanting to stretch too far. I mean, there's always that proverb i can't remember it exactly but nobody actually it goes you know nobody actually wants to go to some town but nobody says you know well let's not do that and everybody ends up driving to this next town um i think that happens a lot too everybody's sitting around waiting for somebody else to say you know we don't have to do it like this we can do something different and it's not going to be 
harder or more expensive yeah. or anything. It's just going to be different and give us something different, which might be more appropriate. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I'll, what, we've been, what we've been dealing with uh, recently, doing a bit more kind of tech office work, where it's the open office environment. So there's a lot of acoustic problems. Mm -hmm. And some, it's a retrofit. So you're putting Band-Aids on to uh, fix the acoustics versus the other side, which is a new build, where you can start that way. And when you have to layer on another piece of design to solve one problem, instead of putting a bit more effort into a design piece that can solve two problems. So an example is what Adam was alluding to, the stud wall with cellulose acoustic panels and then a mesh perforated mm -hmm. covering it so the wall itself became an acoustical dampener so we right. needed to build a wall and we knew we had acoustic problems so we could do a two for one instead of building a wall and building acoustic dampeners so when you can bundle those things it becomes way more efficient it can lighten up the space a bit more and solve all the problems mm -hmm. um without saying, okay, the walls are gonna cost X and the acoustics are gonna cost Y, which usually costs more when you have to do two things instead of just one. Right, right, so there's savings in doing one over two. Even um, if it's different and unique and hasn't been done before. It, it takes a, just a little bit more time to think out. I think it's the other thing about design. Um, usually design fees are between you know six and 15% of your construction budget. So <laughs> why are people rushing through design to get to construction and you end up with a bad plan at the construction site when you're spending you know five to six times more money right yeah I, so for us like we do a, a flat fee model as part of that that it takes out um any incentive for us to save money or charge more you know work right. the budget and you know the hourly with cap the logistics of just keeping track of time, we just say, no, here's your flat fee, let's do it well. And we just worry about the design, mm -hmm. getting it implemented, <laughs> rather than all the logistics of who's saving more money based on this, who's incentivized right. for more time or more money that way. We all just want a really good project in the end. Right, right. Yeah, it's just your, it's kind of an all-in-one. We'll deliver this for this price and don't worry about everything that's happening behind the, behind the, the workshop bench. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, we got you. We're here for you. We represent you. We got you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's, yeah, we're, we're really here to do the best job for you. That yep. gets lost sometimes. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's like everyone, you know, business, sometimes you think everyone's out for themselves, but it's never a good business model to, selfishly say want a more expensive design for a better portfolio piece when your mm. client's not going to want you back or refer you again so you know you want to be more efficient for them so they're happy so you you can make more people happy and have more design opportunities yeah plus those limitations obviously uh, uh, often end up feeding into kind of creativity and and mm -hmm. solving things you know if you could build everything out of travertine marble you wouldn't we wouldn't be discovering new and interesting materials all the time yeah and that's, that's a lot of kind of how we play um, with, you know, cellulose, cellulose acoustic panels, um, fabrics, industrial felt we've been working with a lot lately, standardized lumber. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a lot, you know, we like going to Home Depot and saying, all right, what can we use here? Yeah. How can we misuse this product to do something different? Yep. <laughs> That's part of the design challenge, too. That's, that's the yep. design is not just the object, but it's how do you make it? within these this social and economic context mm -hmm. yeah and it goes i mean we tried to work with uh, a, one acoustic material which in black looks really sharp and interesting in white it looks exactly like styrofoam hmm. so but part of it is the 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 price is a little higher but functionally for acoustics it works really well Aesthetically, it looks like styrofoam, so it looks like the cheapest thing on earth. <laughs> you have, it, it's again like people in their environment, even though it works really well and might be a little more expensive, they feel like they're in a cheap place. 
right? Right. You made a room made of styrofoam. So, you know, after doing a mock-up, you got to go back to the drawing board and think again, okay, there's an emotional reaction to some of these right. materials and assemblies um, that trump some of their functional aspects. So if you just look at the highest performing material just for its function, uh, you lose that emotional poetic piece that architecture really kind of provides at the end of the day because people are in those spaces experiencing them first and foremost. Yeah, and that goes back to the the whole idea of synecdoche and... Um... There's also the idea that people are more than just functional needs, that there's a there's a functionalism that comes with emotional, psychological, and and, and sort of uh, well-being needs that needs to be addressed. Um, and a lot of architecture and design is honestly taking the stuff that is happening as a byproduct of what you're doing and trying to make it look like you did it on purpose. <laughs> trying to de-emphasize or um, codify it in some way that that it looks intentional it looks part of an entire thought yeah and just yeah syncing together all of the components you know architecture is a complex craft and in the end you want it to look like a you want it to look easy right yeah. mm -hmm. to be in a space that looks too intricate and too stressed you know makes you a little bit too stressed out you can almost feel the stress behind producing something yeah <laughs> and so it all has to come off as if it is with ease, but also inspire a little bit and say, well, you know, it's a subtle, nice detail. Um, I haven't even thought of that detail before. I haven't looked at, I haven't seen a detail like that before, but it doesn't yeah. look like, wow, that detail took 20,000 hours. I can only imagine, you know, the labor behind the space and then you just feel tired. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what, like when you're doing the offices, like there's one, the deep field project like whenever we go back in there now, it's kind of this, like a lot of that process, a lot of the design in that was to keep it as open as possible, but then also this kind of community aspect of the the staff being able to sit together at a communal table in this kind of open kitchen. So when you go in there, it's their original office where they were before was a tiny, what, 2,000 square feet yeah. office. They moved into 5,000 square feet. 30 people. Um, so imagine moving 25, 30 people from 2,000 square feet to 5,000 square feet, just like, and then they're still growing, but the, the elbow room, the elbow room changes and being able to actually sit together at a, at a communal place, the space feels much more comfortable. And we found a ton too in the lighting of these spaces, like we're very, we're getting very perceptive to what how much lighting is usually done in offices where it's usually overdone we've mm -hmm. noticed mm -hmm. and trying to scale that back and you know people are sitting at their desk and it doesn't have to be as bright as a tennis court like <laughs> yeah have to be that bright and we've kind of dealt with you know worked with that and try to make a again a more comfortable kind of you forget about the surroundings a little bit when you're there um mm -hmm. environment that you know, it's not screaming at you. Yeah. So again, kind of an idea of, of design and, and functionality that's not about kind of a time and materials or a yeah. efficiency. It's about the greater um, impact of materials and making small moves matter. You know, not yeah. somebody once told me a graphic designer that um, graphic design is not wallpapering. What he meant by that is you don't cover the entire sheet with images. Graphic design is about placing little things. And I think right. your work sounds a lot like that with these new IT spaces. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, that sounds a lot like what, what it is. And two, it's like trying to remove, whenever like working on a detail, the simple things matter. It's almost like we're also trying to remove as many things as possible and still try to get the same kind of effect. Mm -hmm. Whenever especially when we're choosing to build something here, like whenever we go through the steps of, okay, how is it coming together? How's this table come together? This counter, how many things can get removed from it? to kind of, you know, I don't know. Literally the extra weight. Literally it's, take away it, like engineered yeah. off. You know, it's, it's like a fine tuned race car. You know, it's like, we don't yeah. need this bolts extra weight. You <laughs> want to lighten the load as much as possible, but leave 
the design and the clever engineering as the only details left. Yeah. So, so it, I mean, it sounds a little bit like minimalism, but I don't think that's really what you guys are driving it's, at. Yeah. No, yeah, no, because it, if it were like aesthetically, we still want a sense of place. I think minimalism would be more the non-place, right? That you can bring more things to it. I think we're still very much interested in identity to all the spaces yeah. as well. Um, I think minimalism has its own identity and aesthetic. And so when, when we have clients, we, the best clients are drinking buddies in, in kind of a, a term because yeah. once you can be candid with them and really get to know how they work, how they see um, their ambitions, it's much easier to design the space to functionally work based on that but then aesthetically to respond to their emotional response to their own business. Um, and we think architecture can do a, a lot of branding just by the tone it sets, you know, mm -hmm. the details and materials. Um, so we want to layer that in as well. It, it just doesn't have to be plastered everywhere. Right. Like it's very specific, like specific moments of design or, you know, everything kind of falls away to the back. I don't know. It just, yeah. Yeah. It's design the space to lay out um, based on the needs. I think that's why we really like commercial projects a lot too, is they come with a business model. So they know how they work. So yeah. we can translate how they work with their business model into a space layout. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. always kind of starts off the project. And then within that space layout, we say, okay, how, how do you move through and function in that space? Where are those moments that you can kind of touch the detail or experience the detail? And that's where we put the effort. And then everything can recede and just be a space. Um, but yeah, definitely highlighting certain moments. Yeah. To feel a bit more human, to have those details or those material palettes or that lighting tone that makes you feel part of it. So there's, I mean, there's sort of a feeling of, 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 void and I guess even if you're doing a building from the ground up there's still this sort of background and then the moment we always say moments in architecture which I think confuses people but that's because it's more than just a an image or something like that it's a more diverse idea of senses yeah I mean you set up a framework for how you want a project to go and then you fill in kind of the crossroads at certain frames right so if you you made a grid mm-hmm that is your layout at certain intersections, those, those points, you know, there's primary, secondary, and tertiary areas uh, of design. Mm -hmm. um, and those tertiary areas kind of fall back and, you know, carry a common language. And then those primary moments, you can tweak them along the way within all of those different intersections mm -hmm. have a cohesive design, but slight variations that you know make it feel unique and almost handcrafted in a way yeah yeah by kind of um taking the underlying logic of the project whether it's program or the structure and then highlighting those areas of in, of, in, of uh, intense interaction yeah you can really kind of get value for what you're doing yeah that's just, like the compelling part of design lately is figuring out how people function space, function in space. And when they say, we like to stand at our desk, it's like, okay, what's, what's the action of standing? You know, right. why do we, you know, we look at the ways people are acting in space now. And then like, as a typical table, do something else. So when we think about a desk or a table, we think of how we come around a table to, you know, lay out ideas versus a desk, which seems more personalized like that horizontal surface when it's a standing counter that everyone can come at in a much more temporary way versus a conference table where you come at with a more of an agenda mm -hmm. or a desk, which is a more personal workspace. So mm -hmm. while they're still, you know, a working flat surface, they really change how people approach them and then what their reactions are to those objects. Yeah. So really looking at the 
the things that clients tell you they do and how they live and really but trying to interrogate that and find the deeper patterns there that might be granting um, them whatever joy they get from that and trying to access that and then differentiate things that are thought of as similar because of those deeper patterns. Yeah, and then mm. making them question it as well. So it's like, okay, if this is how you work, you think you need these ingredients, what if we tried to mix it up? Um, right. You know, and, and you, you put a little friction back in there and make them reconsider how they think they're working. Um, mm. And some, you know, there's some failures and then there's some successes where they say, wow, we've never been able to have team meetings like this because we never had a space like this because we didn't need a space, didn't think we needed a space like this. Those work out as really opportune moments to push what everyone thinks is typical for a restaurant or an office or, you know, a retail space or whatever, that we mm. question those, those components. So I was um, thinking about this. With all your um, focus on object making or space making or phenomenon making, you know, I once heard two professors discussing, and one of them said, well, does architecture necessarily have to be about a building? And I thought to myself, well, of course it does. If it's, if it's, it could be architectural and be about other things, but it eventually has to be about a building for the word architecture to have any meaning. But I, I think his point was there's a whole school of thought and theory that really doesn't care about architecture as buildings. You look at, like, Peter Eisenman's early projects, a lot of Hayduck's work and so forth. Um, and I was just wondering where do you, you, I suspect where, but I wonder where you guys kind of fall down on the relationship of theory to architecture and is architecture about, what is architecture about? Uh, I, I would, from my perspective, architecture is about enclosed spaces, like by two planes. So mm-hmm. if you could have two parallel planes defining a space Mm -hmm. it's like two fences you know you've made an enclosed space it could be architecture Mm -hmm. you've got a ceiling hovering over a floor that's a defined space by two planes that can be architecture um so i think it does boil down to it must be a a space it's not just objects and architectural Mm -hmm. i think the discipline of architecture helps us with a design skill set to go beyond buildings because we know how people react um, and function in spaces Mm -hmm. that translates to how they function with other things and I think a lot of it's just about the human body acting in the world right it's that you know from that it's like that sense of scale of a thing where if it's a table like if it goes from what architecture kind of trains us to do or, or trains us to think about, you know, it's thinking about the the feel of a table versus it being cold or warm or it being, you know, just the scale to your body, which is the same as the space if you were walking into, you know, versus the scale of a tight space, a tight entryway or, or a large entryway walking into a space. Um, it's kind of that similar, I mean, the ingredients are a little bit different, but the, I think the basic way of thinking of it are about the same, or we take it as the same, and then we think about the material of it, right? Everything, how it connects, how it's, you know, how how one material is butt up next to another. How is it going to be? Is there a space between those? Like, whenever, if it's a table or if it's building, yeah, those those same consideration considerations are made. I think you know, we're doing that every day, kind of, go- and we're always in our office. We're always swapping between those scales too. We're either working on a large plan of a space or a section of a space, and then down to like, okay, we're like today, we're making a stand for an iPad and an iPod to sit on a table that we've done in a trade show that we've designed. So it's like the the scale of the show all the way down to the thing you're going to interact, your hand's going to be on and interacting with. I think you know, yeah. every part of that is important and it has to go through all those those steps and each, cons- you know, every 
question we asked is kind of similar. How simple can we make it? How does it feel when you're at it? Does yeah. it work together with everything else? What right. What's primary? You know, if you're standing at it and touching at it, that becomes primary. I think it's simple. Oh, sorry. Parking light, like we're or just any light. We're not so much interested in the fixture of the light, um, but we're interested in how the light sheds to define a space mm -hmm. um, in some regard. And that's where it can be. The light can be architectural, and we're interested in that object because it sheds space to. It sheds light to define a space. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes we get closer to the scale of the object, but always in conjunction with how it defines a space to interact with a person. Right. So it's 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 an architecture very much about, I guess about object making. It's but it's like you don't start with uh, some idea about the philosophical meaning of glass and its transparentness, but its separateness, and build a project around that concept. It starts with a series of priorities you guys have. It sounds like and is directed towards objects. Yeah. Or space. It always starts with the architecture, and mm -hmm. then we zoom in. We never start with an object and figure out how it will fit into the architecture. Okay. I think it's one, it's a one direction, um, sort of process for us. Yeah. It's work from the big out, which I think yeah. is a lot of people or the big in, excuse me. I think a lot of people do that. Yep. Um, we do. And at the same time, we're always kind of probing, like, why is it that way? Or why is it, you know, yeah. that like it's, it's about glass or it's about a hard surface. Like we are always still asking, those questions along the way is like, why do we even need it? Or like, yeah. we, you know, we usually ask every time is like, is this even necessary? Or, is, you know, does it work with everything else? Why is it this way? Mm -hmm. So we all, we'll always, you know, ask about everything to see if it's working together. Yeah. Basically, Try to throw something we want to throw everything away. Yeah. <laughs> and then whatever just... we just can't let go of is what stays in the project <laughs> and gets all the attention. So there's, um, is it that, so it's, it's informed by a lot of ideas, obviously. It's not just about dumb objects, but it's the object first and the ideas how they service that. Does that sound right? Well, it's, it's about doing a service and then what object might do that service. So, you know, and we're, it's never that we really want to try a connection detail or try a welding moment or try two materials together. It never starts with some detail that we might be able to apply to a specific object. Mm -hmm. It always starts with what needs to happen, what object might it be, and then we work through the details of it. Mm -hmm. So is there any time in that kind of uh, whittling down process where you kind of realize that something's hanging around not because of something inherent in the problem, but because of some sort of preconceived notions that you guys bring to the project? And... Sometimes, I don't know. Yeah. Those usually go away quickly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like we, if anything that's there early, usually ends up gone, or it's like yeah. enough that uh, there's never really a preconceived moment because we can't really start without really going through the process. And that, I think having multiple people in the design process, you know, while Adam and I have worked designing together for a long time, we also know when to call each other out. So we will kill each other's precious moments. You know, <laughs> nothing can be precious and we're very much willing to kind of let things go once a valid argument is made for why it's no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're proud of our work and we really kind of like what we're doing, but there's never a moment where we say we have to hold on to this piece that we're proud of because there might be some other opportunity down the road it will work better at or there's a reason it wasn't working right, and we just have to learn and let it go. Mm -hmm. Well, where, where do you guys, he said you go through the process, where do you usually start, or where, what do you usually consider the starting point? Is it the first, that first motion that puts the process into gear? It's the people, like it's a, it's first, I guess, Getting, I mean, getting, getting to know the client, the but then we start yeah. with, like, you know, it's yeah. just layout and then finding, you know, within the floor plan and section, like, those those places where everyone's going to converge or, you know, some something will happen that 
needs more design and then we zoom into those moments yeah. and design a bit more but it, it all comes from i mean usually the tolerance we worked with a lot of small spaces so mm -hmm. tolerance of inches yeah. to make everything fit between two existing walls and especially like doing restaurants where a lot of the work in laying it out is in the back of the mm -hmm. restaurant whereas the back of uh, the back kitchen processes that get worked out how much space is that going to take and how, then we kind of once we're dealing with the you know the restaurant owner how they're working with it how they're cooking yeah. getting to know how they're going to be in there now we know the basics of you know the, the space. menu and we then know the how menu. service yeah yeah so i guess you know obviously you do um you might even think of it as kind of information gathering talking to the client so that then it sounds like there's some some work and plan kind of I guess a series of diagrams where you're looking at what the physical space is and what the client's talking about or is it just more of a meditation on those things until it begins to merge emerge from the mist you start right away you start you just put pen to paper immediately <laughs> yeah. like there's no no ambiguity like you have to get cuz usually these time like the time limits that we're on in everyone the wants it yesterday where, yeah, yeah restaurants want to be open yesterday uh, but yeah, everybody wants to get going and they're looking to you for like, all right, what, what do we have? What are we going to do? And so, yeah, we start immediately with the you know, yeah. sizes of the bathrooms, yeah. where are they going to go and then work, you know, it, well, then, oh, you know, it's just, you can't refine and make a design better unless you have a design to start with. Right. And yeah. so we make a really crappy first attempt on yeah. the first night. We usually the very beginning, we, we will kind of grab a beer and talk about it and sketch some stuff out mm -hmm. and have an aha moment that we start with. And then two weeks later, that aha moment has completely flipped into, you know, what it should be after right. developing it. But yeah, it's just pen to paper immediately. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it usually starts with a beer. Now that yeah. I think about it, we usually go out like, to... Okay, go to, go to a different location than where we normally work. Yeah. Go yeah. somewhere else, just change it up, talk yeah. about it. Michigan has ideas. a lot of good home breweries. So, yeah. yeah, it usually starts in a nice loud brewery mm -hmm. for a couple hours. And then we get, we get back to the office and knock out a design in a day. Yeah. Plus, I think it's kind of fun to live with the possibilities of a project for a while before you start driving yourself crazy, trying to fit it in and jumping in with the, the practical space planning. But that sounds like it's almost a, those are the first marks on paper you make to start seeing how ideas fit together. Yeah, and, it's necessary. Yeah. Like, yeah. can't be fooling ourselves of what's going to fit or what's going to, you know, what it's going to be like. We want to know the basic ingredients of what we have to work with, yeah. then we can really get going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I've kept you guys long enough. There's still a little bit of daylight, I'm sure, left. Um, you guys good? Is there anything else on your minds? Oh, there's so many things, Nathan, but <laughs> well, put them to paper and we'll make some projects out of them and we'll share them with you that way. That sounds great. Sounds great. 